I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Lock up your sons. The fangirls are busting out all over. It's Fangirl Radio. Fangirl Radio. And Fangirl Radio is alive! Yes, we are alive on the air here, there, and everywhere for you tonight. And uh, this is going to be our extra special um, San Diego Comic-Con coverage episode. And with me uh, tonight is the lovely and talented Rachel Moore. Good evening, lively. (laughs) Very lively. Um, So, yes, I survived Comic-Con, and I am back with some great clips for you. Uh, People like Robert Downey Jr., uh, Peter Jackson, Martin Freeman, Charlton Copley, Matt Damon, uh, and Tim Burton, uh, just to name a few of them. And, uh, yeah, Comic-Con this year was, as usual, insanely packed. Um, I managed to get there on Wednesday night for preview night, and it was chaos, uh, if you um, if you were there for preview night, you know what I'm talking about. I I'm guessing that this year we may have had even more than we had last year. And last year, I think the count was around a quarter of a million people. Uh, and I've heard that um, this year the uh, the panels were more popular than ever, and the the sh- the um, screenings were more popular than ever. So it actually left the merch floor quite open for people to be able to get merchandise. And you probably didn't get a chance to experience that at all because you were running around like mad. But well, the the problem was um, so many things at Comic Con cross over in time. And if you and and another good uh, description for Comic Con is the line ride because you're in line at least 50% of the time you're there for one thing or another. And a good example of that was the 10th anniversary um, Firefly panel that was announced, which was within an hour of The Walking Dead, which was in Hall H. And Hall H was basically, uh, you know, zero hour. You you can't get in there. Um, People camped out overnight. I I personally know a couple of people. Hi, Rob. Um, That uh, camped out overnight for Iron Man 3 specifically to get in for that. Uh, starting at nine o'clock the night before, and that was on Saturday. So Friday night, they were camping out at nine p.m. Um, the other thing, of course, that a lot of people had already heard about um, that happened the day before I arrived was uh, the lady who got killed um, trying to cross the street um, illegally for the line for Twilight, which had lined up <laughs> on Sunday. Um, the Sunday lineup for a Thursday panel. Because this was the last one. And, and it turned out to be a really special one. Uh, I believe 20 plus cast members showed up. Could you say it was to die for? Oh, that's not nice. I'm sorry. Too soon. Yeah, too soon. Right. No, um, it, it was a, a pretty emotional con for a lot of people, though. Uh, um, not only that tragedy happening, um, yeah. but, but you had uh, Tim Burton was on uh, there on Thursday for Frank and Weenie. And then um, on Friday, Zanuck died and who has produced uh, so many of his films. And that, and that's just sad. I, I was lucky yeah. enough to get to see him at, at in person at the dark shadows um, press day. But then Sly Stallone was there on Friday and then his son passed away the following so day. Yeah, and uh, I know that um, the Jackalope crew is uh, was friends with Sage, so it's even more tragic for all of them. Um, but just 
the timing was so ridiculous on all of that. So it was kind of a tragic, it was very emotional um, to a lot of people. Plus, you had the Firefly panel where Nathan Fillion and everyone bawled um, because it was the first time they'd been all together in so long. So that was a really special event, and, and they all cried on stage. Um, but like I, like I said, the, the panels were very close together. A lot of people, you, you had to pick, and uh, that's typical. And you said, you know, that left the floor open for merchandising. Well, everything sold out. The Mattel Collector's Booth this year had uh, two things that I wanted that I couldn't even get. And they're things that you wouldn't think would sell out normally, which was the Polly Pocket um, DC uh, Villains set and then the Monster High doll sold out, both of them, um, at the show within two days, I think, two or three days. And then um, the BBC America booth, all the Sherlock stuff was gone. Um, the... Uh, uh, you know, just it's just crazy merchandising everywhere. It's and and the floor was packed. Uh, the one thing that I know a lot of people had a problem with was the location of the Walking Dead booth this year was right smack across from the legendary picture. I think it's either legendary pictures or Weta. I think it was the Weta booth, and they had the full size trolls from Lord of the Rings where you could take your picture with them right across from where Michonne and her pets were there where you could take a picture with them. So if you went to that area, you were stuck for 10 minutes easily trying to just get through, not even in line. I'm talking, I was in line for the walking dead booth on Sunday for at least a half an hour. And, uh, that was the slow day. (laughs) Um, but the other cool thing that they had going on, um, you know, even though they didn't really have any Batman, uh, you know, which I found weird because, you know, this week uh, was Dark, Dark Knight Rises comes out. They didn't really do anything for that there other than they had every Batmobile from every movie, including the Adam West series um, on display. And that was really neat. That was all outside in this area called the Batcave. And um, they actually turned them on. Uh, for a brief moment, I, on Sunday I was there when the Merlin cast came out. And the girl, I love the fact that the girls were more excited about getting in the cars than the guys seemed to be. <laughs> and they revved the engines of the Tumblr and, and the, uh, the Tim Burton, Michael Keaton vehicle. And that was awesome to hear and see uh, those go actually turn on. And I was almost afraid because I, I, I leaned over to my friend and I told him, I hope she doesn't kick the brake off. And she's revving this engine like crazy. <laughs> um, so it was a, it was really, really great this year, though. I think it was one of the best Comic-Cons ever just in terms of content. Even if I never stepped foot in Hall H this year, which is a tragedy, but I didn't get to see Hall H footage at all this year. Uh, but I did get into some great, great press panels. And um, every one of them I wanted to get into, I did, except for, of course... Quentin Tarantino, which is a long, long, sordid story on its own, but we won't go there. We're going to you focus will, on you the will positive. Have, <laughs> you will be able to uh, uh, get in with Tarantino someday. It's just it's Kismet Je- Jess. You two belong together. I, I I know. I think it's to to save people's brains from exploding in our vicinity when we start talking. I really, truly do. God, I think God's will is in effect here. Um, but a lot of awesome. It would be a lot of awesome in one space, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'm going off track. Um, But in terms of uh, press panels, one that I was very excited for, in which uh, you got to see a lot of at Comic-Con, and and I published, um, I posted some really great pics of the Frankenweenie um, art exhibition that they had there, which were actual props and pieces from the movie. Uh, they had on display this super detailed, beautiful work. Uh, Disney and, and Burton back together again, doing the, I believe, first ever all black and white stop motion animated feature. Um, I've never heard of one of these being done in all black and white before, but everything is black and white. And it looks gorgeous. Uh, they had all of those pieces on exhibition there, and we got some great photos up on fangirlmag.com. Go check it out. Um, we also have some of the footage from the the uh, 
the press panel there on video. Uh, but I also have some uh, some audio here that I'd like to play for you. I actually finally got to ask Burton a question that had been I had been dying to ask him for years, and uh, I I got uh, the answer I finally wanted to get out of him. So um, I'm going to cue that up here. And as I said, this is live, so bear with me on this. I'm, I've never done a live broadcast before, so here's hoping this all works. So here is um, a clip from the Frank and Weenie press panel. Hi, Tim. Um, I, uh, I love your work, and I wanted to know, um, there seems like there's an emotional connection to you as it's, to your films. As it seems like you bring back a dog of yours in almost every one of your children's films. Um, can you give me a little background about that? Is that true? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's, when you're young, you know, it's the first kind of pure relationship you have. You have, if you're lucky enough to have a pet that you love, you know, and it's something that's like, connects right to your heart. And I think that that's the thing, and I was lucky enough to have a special pet that, that, you know, I had that kind of relationship with. So, you know, the whole sort of Frankenstein element is kind of wish fulfillment in that kind of way, and, and uh, you, you know, because I always found those movies like Frankenstein quite emotional, so it was a good, it seemed like a fairly natural connection to, 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 to combine the two. So I always wondered, because in every one of his children's movies, it seems like he brought his dog back. Mm-hmm. You have Zero, and then you have, um, I believe it was, was it Spike in uh, Corpse Bride? I can't remember the name of the dog in Corpse Bride. That's horrible. Spot. Uh, Spot. 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 Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I was very happy to get to finally ask him about that because it had been killing me for a while. And and it was great to finally um, get the answer. And it it, no, it was pretty evident. And the other great thing about Frank and Weenie is the fact that it's uh, the he it was one of his first shorts that he ever directed was the live action version of this, and this version looks very much like uh, that combined with the movie Vincent, um, in that style. So there, the movie itself turns into a big monster homage with like Gamera is there, the creature from the Black Lagoon shows up, and they're all family pets. So it's it's hilarious. I really really like that. So, Rachel, I'm going to give you a, sh- a chance here. Anything you want to know about from Comic-Con? Uh, you know, I, I'm i really um, more interested in the comics aspect, which is, which is kind of going to the wayside. But um, I heard that you got to talk to my schmoopy-poo, Martin Freeman, <laughs> one step closer to uh, Benny. Happy birthday, Benedict Cumberbatch. And uh, and also Jared Padalecki because I don't want to leave anyone out. But you got to talk to my schmoopy poo, um, Martin Freeman, and tell me is he really that devastatingly charming in real life, especially at Comic Con where there's hundreds of thousands of people. Oh my gosh! It uh, the Martin Freeman thing was great because that was part of, and I actually have the audio here. I'm going to share with you guys. Um, the uh, the Hobbit panel was just amazing to see. You know, Ian McKellen. Sir Ian McKellen shows up in his pink cardigan. <laughs> Uh, and Martin and Martin Freeman is wearing light blue and a little a, a cute little fedora hat, and uh, then Peter Jackson comes out and Richard Armitage has a full on beard and and uh, Andy Circus <laughs> is with them as as he should because he's Thorn, um, but they come out and it's it's amazing to hear, you know I, I'll give you the like I said I'll have the audio here in just a second pulled up for you but um, I have to say Peter Jackson and Martin Freeman both gave such eloquent and very well thought answers. This is the first time Martin Freeman has been at Comic-Con before. Which is interesting if you think about it, considering you think of Martin Freeman, you think for some reason he's a genre guy, but he's really not done that much in genre work. It's because of Hitchhiker's Guide. Right. Because the minute he was Hitchhiker's Guide, which we we won't even talk about that movie, but he became one of us and (laughs) claimed him for our, our, our own and yes. <laughs> right. So I want to, um, since Rachel seems very excited about the Martin Freeman, I shall, I'm going to play the clip of Martin Freeman. And this is a great question, um, just in case you can't quite hear the question part, because the, the mic, I, I, my um, recorder was right next to Martin Freeman. It just so happened. Um, 
Yeah, I know. My recorder has been in places people can only dream of. In, in point <laughs> of fact, Ian McKellen grabbed it and put it in his pocket as he walked by to mess with me. <laughs> I told and- uh- told my friend's daughter who just loves Martin Freeman I said I showed her the text where you said I just talked to Martin Freeman and I wrote back whore and she looked at me and she's like that hurts my feelings I'm going to my room now (laughs) I just left no but um this is uh, a gentleman asked him about um doing literary adaptations which he's you know this is his at least second if not more than he's done because I know he did a a piece of uh, Shakespeare as well not including Sherlock. I mean, the guy's now Mr. Book. Uh, so this was a question, and I, I found it interesting because these are the two meanings, the, the two genres meaning that he's done, the, the Hitchhikers and um, The Hobbit was what he was talking about in regards to this. So this one's a little bit longer of a clip, and so I'm going to play it for Rachel and everyone at home right now. So, Yay. Yes, I know. Well, there you go. Uh, Mr. Freeman, you've done uh, other literary adaptations before. Hmm. Uh, what, how can you compare the experiences of taking on uh, Tolkien and taking on Adams? Hmm. Uh, it's more green screen. It's more, even more green screen this time than with Adams. Um, they are—they're very different. I mean, apart, apart from the fact that they have a, a fantastical element to them, and the, and I'm playing uh, adaptations. That they are completely different. I mean, literally different worlds. Um, I mean, the experience, the experience of this is genuinely unlike anything I've ever done, and unlike anything I'm likely to do again, just for breadth of scale and time, um, and just being in a complete, well, a different part of the hemisphere than I'm used to. I mean, it's, it's a whole different experience. It's like a, a, a huge chunk of your life, you know. Um, so that alone makes it different from anything else. The, the budget makes it different from anything. You know, like you're constantly walking onto sets and sound stages where what you're acting on would take up the entire budget of any other film I've done. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so just the scale of it is um, quite phenomenal. The, the, yeah, I, I, I don't know. For me, they're incomparable. You know. As far as taking a character from a book, is, uh, is either author make it easier for you to have mm. a character? Um, that's a good question. Not that I've noticed. Not that I noticed particularly. No. I mean, again, I mean, with Arthur Dent as well, he, he he serves, I suppose, a similar kind of function to Bilbo in that he's the nearest thing to an audience member in the film. You know, um, he's kind of the audience's way in. Um, but and and to a certain extent, you could argue that they're archetypes in the hands of a much lesser actor. Um, cue laughter. And. <laughs> They're slow tonight. Um, no, but you know, they're, they're kind of they're, they're ciphers in a way, I suppose you could say, uh, and they're people who they're sort of reluctant uh, heroes who, who who end up being heroes kind of by accident, you know, because they're you know they're archetypal stay-at-home people, I suppose. But also, a lot of the time, it's not just about whether the author makes makes it easier, because you know that goes through an ad- an adaptive that's a word process, and then you're working with directors as well. So it's the, the entire experience that kind of determines whether you're going to have an easy time of it or not. So it's, it's not just a, a Tolkien versus Douglas Adams, um, both of whom are brilliant writers. Uh, it's, it's who's directing the film, who's adapted it. It's, it's everything, you know. I really like that answer. It, I mean, he's just such a well-thought-out person, and I'm so excited to see him play Bilbo. And just from the clips, you can see how he's he made sure to make it his own while still working in what Ian Holm did in the Lord of the Rings movies. And so. Right. And the other, um, the other thing that came out during that press panel and I has been making the rounds, but I've actually got the audio of, of it being spoken about. And also um, a little bit extra too. I really like this question that was asked to Peter Jackson was the fact that they're going, there is a very distinct possibility that there will be a third movie. Um, yeah, even though apparently the <laughs> Tolkien family hates these films, uh, the studio has retained the rights to some extra material that um, was created, um, like the appendixes of the books and that kind of thing. And uh, Jackson announced that they're really seriously looking into going back and filming a little bit more and doing a third movie. 
because there's just so much stuff there and he you know they all love doing this and it's a beautiful place to go and speaking of third movies was there any buzz at comic-con about hellboy 3 not that i heard because while you were gone guillermo del toro and um ron perlman announced that after ron perlman had dressed up for the Make-A-Wish um, kid as Hellboy, it like rekindled his love of the series, and he and Guillermo del Toro decided they have to finish it now. And I, I would hope that they intention. would. So I, I didn't know if they, they that was going around Comic Con at all, but I was I I oh my god, <laughs> you well, know how I feel about Hellboy. So right. Well, the thing that um, I did set in with the Pacific Rim panel, and he's still working on that movie, and that movie will not be released until next year. So he's still got a ways to go. So you're if they are going to do a third Hellboy movie, it won't be, but for another at least another year or, or two years, I'm guessing. And. Um, they're all getting older, so they need to hurry up and do it. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to I wanted to include this bit with Peter Jackson because it's a uh, it's a really good point. Um, I've heard a lot of people ask about the fact that the Hobbit was more um, suited for kids, and how is that going to work with how adult the um, a trilogy that he did earlier um, is? You know, it's very serious stuff an adult so um i really like this answer this kind of um this is sort of another long uh a long clip but it's definitely worth listening to so hold on just a second let me cue that up yeah. okay here we go well it's all very it's it's, it's it's very, very premature. I mean, they, they, it, we um, have got an incredible source material with the appendices, because the, the Hobbit is obviously the novel, but then um, we also have, have, have the rights to use the, the, this 125 pages of uh, additional notes that, that we're talking expanded the world of the Hobbit that, um, that's published at the end of uh, Return of the King, isn't it? And, and, um, and we've used some of that. Um, so far, and, and just in the last few weeks as we've been um, wrapping up the shooting and, and thinking about the shape of the story, we've actually, Philippa and, and Fran and I have been talking to the studio about other things that we haven't been able to shoot, and, and, and seeing if we could possibly persuade them to do a few more weeks of shooting, probably more than a few weeks actually, a, a, a bit of shooting, um, additional shooting next next year, and, and what form that ended up taking, we, we, I mean, the, the discussions are pretty early, so, there's, so there isn't anything to report, but... Um, we're certainly, um, you know, there's other parts of the story that we'd like to tell that we haven't had the chance to tell yet. So we're, we're just trying to, to, have, to have those conversations with the studio at the moment. My question is to Peter. Hmm. Uh, Lord of the Rings books were written for more mature readers, and I think that tone reflects itself in your adaptations of the original trilogy. But The Hobbit was written more as a children's novel, and how does that affect your adaptation? Would you aim to match the tone of the novel, or to match the tone set up by your book book? Uh, it's a very good question, and I think the answer lies somewhere in between. Um, again, it's a similar answer, actually, because we, we, uh, we, we've basically used more source material than just The Hobbit. Um, you know, like, for instance, in The Hobbit, where, where Gandalf uh, mysteriously disappears for, you know, ch chapters on end, and it's never really explained in any detail where he's gone. Um, much later, Tolkien fleshed those moments out, and he did, in these appendices, he did talk about what happened, and, and it was altogether a lot more darker and more serious than what... Um, is written in The Hobbit. So, we've, you know, we, and, and also I do want to make, to be quite honest, I want to make a series of movies that, that run together, so if any crazy lunatic wants to watch them all in a row, <laughs> they, um, they, 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 they will, there will be a consistency of tone. I, I, I don't want to make you know, a purely children's story followed by The Lord of the Rings. So we are, um, we are providing a balance. I mean, a lot of the comedy and the charm and the fairy tale quality of, of, of the Hobbit comes from um, comes from the characters. You know, you, you are dealing with um, you know you're dealing with Bilbo Baggins, who who, who is a, a little more reluctant, possibly, to go on an adventure than Frodo was. You're dealing with dwarves who have a personality um, and and a, a sort of a, um, a camaraderie all of their own. And so there's a lot of humour. And, and a light touch to be gained from those characters, but there's still some serious themes involved. So hopefully the movies, hopefully that the Hobbit films will kind of, you know, comfortably straddle both worlds. And I, I like that answer. 
because that's mm. what we should be getting from this movie, you know, because it is. It's the introduction to the world of Tolkien for kids. So I really like the uh, response he got, and I'm excited about what he can go back and create, you know, for a third film. Because if anybody can can give us more to this, it's Peter Jackson. The right. guy's a mate. Um, the, uh, the one thing I did want to mention, because you brought up Ron Perlman, was uh, Thomas Jane was there. And Thomas Jane and Ron Perlman have, uh, they kind of, it was interesting because Jane, Thomas Jane did his own panel for this. They did a fan film of, um, for The Punisher. And it was completely indie, but Thomas Jane reprised his role as The Punisher and Ron Perlman is in it. And uh, I know uh, one of the, uh, I think uh, Rob Delamorte uh, had posted a link to the film, and it's actually awesome. It was really, really good, and they premiered it at the Comic-Con. <laughs> so he was talking about, um, one thing Thomas Jane was talking about, and it's interesting you brought this up too, because about the, uh, the, the kind of the loss of the comic book part of Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Was he? He was uh, taking a stand against the Hollywoodization. I guess that's a word of Comic Con. How big studios are kind of pushing the comic book aspect out of the convention. Yeah, I I I think that um, uh, Jeff Jocks, who does the questionable comic or questionable content, and uh, he does. Um, quite a few other things that I'm really a big fan of. He was talking about going to Comic-Con this year and how there, you know, it's reaching capacity and there's not a lot of more space Comic-Con can take up, but on the comic floor, he's seeing lots of people. It's just the same faces that he's seen every year, which is great because he gets to touch with his fan base, but it's not like it used to be where you saw so many new people. And part of that, I think, is because you can't just spontaneously go to Comic-Con like you used to be able to. It's a big plan. You know, you not only have to plan ahead to even get a hotel room, but on top of that, you have to plan what you're doing while you're there very carefully. And so how did you manage that? Because this year, you went by yourself. I mean, you didn't go with any assistance or anything like that. No, I didn't. Um, it was really kind of like a military exercise. I mean, I, I, and I'm not kidding. I, I printed out the entire schedule of the show and put it in a, in a folder, individual plastic covered sheets. And then I had that easy access. If there was any chance of me at all seeing a panel, there wasn't. I didn't get to see anything other than the press rounds. And then I got to go on the floor. Um, but I managed to, you know, you really just have to schedule correctly and know what you're doing. And the other part of that is don't overdo it. Um, this is the first year that I've gone that I've realized I've felt my age. And I'm 37. I'm not like I'm 100. But um, I, you, it wears you out. It physically wears you out. And, yeah, all you're doing is setting and or walking all day long but it wears you out and you forget to eat or you can only grab like one of the crappy burgers like and the other part of that is the amount of money it costs to eat around comic-con um the say the cafe express in the convention center on sunday i decided to eat there because i wanted to actually spend sunday on the floor i hadn't gotten to do that really the whole show 15 dollars for a cheeseburger fries and a soda and it was this most subpar fries and burger you'll ever have and it was a $15 meal for that it was the not even the quality of mcdonald's well you know that's that's how you know a lot of uh big festivals for music and everything are and it's sad to see comic-con going that way just because it was where we you know people connect with their people and so going through it and experiencing that comic-con fatigue almost are you are you still into comic-con are you so glad you went and will you be going back oh yeah i'm totally going back i mean i my buddy joe and i made a pact that they're going to just drag our corpses out of hall h or the convention center when we die i mean that's uh we'll die at comic-con because it's just (laughs) such an you don't the the other thing is yeah it's it's big and loud and it kills you and you need to take a day off after you come back just to recuperate but 
there is something about Comic-Con that is still magical that you can go there and know that like when someone says something or says a reference and you make eye contact with that person, you can grin and go, yeah, you both know what you're thinking is the same thing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's hilarious and awesome. And even when you're in line, like I, I spent on Sunday, I had to ship something out to myself and I spent at least an hour and a half in the FedEx line for the FedEx office in the convention center. And I didn't mind because the people in line with me, I mean, they were having conversations or talking about, like, for instance, the new Superman movie. Mm-hmm. The um, the guy was saying how he's kind of worried. He didn't know if Zack Snyder could do this. And I looked at the guy. And I just You just start talking to a, another stranger because you both know the same stuff. You're both there for the same reason. And I just was like... Oh, the thing with Zack Snyder is he can't do his own original stuff, but he's great with other people's. And the guy's like, yeah, you're right, you know. (laughs) You just, you you know, you just, you just can talk to everyone. Everyone's there. So it's like when we're waiting in the movie line for the midnight movie, but on a grander scale. (laughs) On steroids, yes. That's pretty much it. It's it's just exactly like that. And it's still a magical place because it's for five days the geeks take over we the the we rule everything everything is for us and um you know you're never you know they took over petco park and made it into a zombie survival game <laughs> How, it, you'll never find that in other other places and then for people like me who 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 you know are into writing this about the stuff and and get the opportunity to be in the middle of all this you have more access like i've got you know, like just for example, for the show, I'm giving you guys the, sharing with you what I got to go through with like meeting Peter Jackson and meeting Guillermo del Toro and telling him, hey, Guillermo, whatever happened to that uh, that anthology series I asked you about last, you know, a couple of years ago, was that ever going to happen? And he says, oh, that's on the wish list, you know, mount, you know, in the mount, you know, Hills of Madness was going to, Mountains of Madness was, was going to happen, then didn't, and now this is happening. But no, that's on the wish list. And I said, you know, I got to shake his hand and say, well, I just want you to know I want to see that because you made me so happy when you said you love Dan Curtis. And he goes, oh, I, I love Dan Curtis. You know, it's like, I got to do that because of Comic-Con. Well, and someone that you've been wanting to um, meet in person for a long time was there, which is Cheryl Tote Copley. Oh, yes. The the Copley and the Matt Damon <laughs> and, and the Jodie Foster were all there for one of the most awesome things. I did not get to see any footage because I was not in Hall H at all, but I was there for the panel, and I have audio for you of this, which was great. Um for those of you who don't know who Charlotte Copley is and my long and, and very love-filled, you know, your sorted fan girl affair. My following <laughs> of this man. Uh, he is awesome. He's on Facebook. Um, he uh, was Wickes Vandermeer in the, one of the best sci-fi movies of the last 20 years, I would say, um, District 9. And Neil Blomkamp, who directed and wrote that film, has directed and wrote yet another um, called Elysium. And this time around, he's got a a huge studio behind him. He's also got Weta back for more, uh, who designed the weapons and all the goodies from the last film. And this time, he's got Matt Damon and Jodie Foster as uh, cast members. This movie was kind of the big surprise. No one really even knew what it was about. Mm. For the longest time, it, the, the title doesn't really give you much. The um, uh, the viral video thing they did of the space station stuff was neat, but it didn't really give you anything either. It just kind of hinted. So um, finally, there was a synopsis released, and basically we find out that this is... And I've posted some video, and actually I've posted the uh, the faux commercial on FangirlMag.com, as well as some great photos I got at the at the uh, round or the press panel. But basically, the movie is uh, a nice little metaphor, as District Nine was this time around. Though it's a metaphor for healthcare and borders, uh, you know, uh, the border issues that countries are having, and especially this, the United States is a nice example of that, and also the healthcare debate, where the rich are able to get better healthcare than the poor, and the, the core of the film is, 
Matt Damon's character is dying. And he is stuck on Earth where all the poor people are and everyone wants to be on Elysium, which is the space station where um, all the rich people are and are able to have access to these medical pods and that kind of thing. So um, it's going to be a great movie. Um, Matt Damon looks almost nigh on unrecognizable as the character he's playing. He's got a shaved head. He's scarred up. He's all buff. Uh, and then Charlotte Copley, we found out, is a bad guy in a way. Like very, well, he's kind of like the anti-hero. He's kind of that gray ground of, um, he's the paid labor. He's a, uh, he's playing a guy named Kruger, which I find amusing, <laughs> um, for other reasons, uh, that uh, is a sort of a black operative uh, who works for Jodie Foster, who is um, the bad guy. Key. Clarice Darling, we hardly knew you. Um, so uh, she's she's there to keep the ba- the the people out like Matt Damon. The 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 the, um, the rabble can't come through because of her. And when bad things happen and people need to be taken care of, she sends out Wickus. I'm sorry, Kruger to go and take care of it. And I'm really excited about this because I Copley got a very um, he's not your typical heavy type but he's got an intensity about him that you can tell can sell this and do great with this kind of a role it makes me even more excited now because he's he's been cast as the main bad guy as of as of the last i heard the main bad guy in the old boy remake so that will be um pretty awesome yeah and so i'm excited uh about that i think it's going to be great um and uh, so what, right now I want to share with you a couple of clips from uh, the Elysium panel. The first one is basically um, Neil Blomkamp uh, giving you an uh, idea of what the film is about and, and uh, everyone talking about uh, what they took from the movie in terms of, of content. So uh, let me cue that up here. Hold on just a second. And here we go. Nobody has a clue what this movie is about. What can you say? Can you just kind of guide us with what the concept or the and the role specifically for uh, Matt and Jody are? Well, the synopsis was um, a lot of what we want to say after you see it. What I was saying they didn't know what they were doing. Um, no, it's a lot like the synopsis. It's uh, it's a film about an orbital space station that has the rich living on it, and Earth is diseased and um, has been left behind with with the money and the resources having left. And uh, Matt is from Earth, and Jody's from the space station. And what type of themes are, are running through it? I mean, you're saying that the rich. I mean, there's a lot of that in the newspaper today. Or the- yeah. The rich seem to be getting more than one percent. So, how much are we reflecting on? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not uh, the, the film definitely has elements of the haves and the have-nots and the, and the discrepancy in wealth that seems to be a widening gap. Um, but it, it it hopefully is a film where that sort of is woven into the tapestry of the story in a way that feels like an organic science fiction thrill ride. You know, so the themes are. The themes are sort of touched upon in a, in a hopefully in a fairly realistic, not over the top way. And Jody, if you just address the film. Um, I agree with what he said. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a tough uh, trick to be able to um, create an intelligent movie that has sociopolitical commentary and also have it be primitive and emotional and moving and blow things up at the same time. And you know, that, that's something that Neil does. I think this film is very different than District 9 and, and addresses some of those issues from a very different way, but I think they share that um, mixture of sensibilities. I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I think that uh, first and foremost will be really entertaining and, uh, and, and, and really work on that level. Um, but, uh, but yeah, certainly I think it had a lot of relevance. <clears throat> Funnily enough, you know, the, kind of the whole terminology of the 99% and the 1% didn't even, wasn't even there when we, when we started. 
just <clears throat> I just remember Neil the first time I met him. He said, "Look, I grew up in South Africa and I emigrated to Canada when I was 18, and, and to go from the third world to the first world, you know, at that age, absolutely, you know, changed the way I look at the world." And so, you know, but this is the aesthetic sci-fi world, and you know, the, the core, all that stuff is like the, the, the kind of stuff that he loves, and, and so what he's thinking about gets expressed that way. Yeah. Yes. So I I am really excited about this movie. Is what it comes yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, it's it's amazing that we haven't heard more about it beforehand, and it, it was worth the wait. Oh, totally. And and apparently, while he was writing this screenplay, he wrote another one too. That's a comedy sci-fi. <laughs> So Neil Blomkamp is awesome. That's what we take away from all of it, <laughs> is that he is awesome. And just because it was a monumental moment in fangirl history, I I have to I have to play the little brief snippet of where I got to ask Charlotte Copley a question because because I got to finally talk to him, and it was awesome. And he was pretty, and I have pictures to prove so. <laughs> So there. So here we go. Um, this is actually something I, I was really seriously, I wanted to know because if you, if you check out his Facebook page, he does some amazing stuff with behind the scenes and uh, um, just pictures and giving you background on things like the A-Team press tour stuff and especially the District 9 stuff. I really would love for him to make a book or something because it's just that good. So um, my question was asking him, you know, you'll see. Is he going to do that for Elysium? Because can you imagine? Ugh. That would be that would be great. So um, here we go. Uh, for Mr. Uh, on your Facebook page, you these great behind the scenes uh, photos and stories. Will you be sharing anything like that from this film? No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, I was able to do uh, District 9 because it was a, a smaller project, you know, that I was involved with right from the beginning. And uh, this one was you know, teams of people doing the behind the scenes pictures and stuff. So, yeah. But you can do it though, once it comes out. Yeah, no, it was like, yeah, that would be cool. Okay, apparently yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> once it comes out, yeah. Once it comes out, yeah. I mean, all of it turns out. See, that's what happens when you have the producer and the director and the stars there. <laughs> I love that. No, you can't. Yes, he can. No, he can't. <laughs> Blomkamp knows it's good stuff. Uh, yeah. So I, I thought that was funny. Um, the other, um, the other biggie movie that, um, that uh, of course was great at Comic Con this year was. The uh, one of the only uh, Marvel movies that actually had footage already filmed and had been filming for at least a while was Iron Man three, and the the cool thing about Iron Man three Comic Con, I love Robert Downey Jr. can be a smartass sometimes, but man, <laughs> the guy knows how to market himself and is great because he's a big old ham. And well, this is the guy that on his trailer, when everyone else's trailer on the Avengers read Chris Evans and Tom Hiddleston, his says Tony Stark. Because he is Tony Stark. <laughs> that's, no, that's he, what you need to remember. He, he is Tony Stark. I mean, this is why he was born to play this character. Um, he uh, actually, I found this out, and I, I, I think I saw some photos. But uh, there was someone walking around at Comic-Con in this awesome Iron Man suit. Looked just brilliant, gorgeous, looked like something walked off the movie set. And so... Uh, the rumor was you walk up to the guy, and I, I believe this truly, this was going on, um, that you walk up to the guy and you ask to take your picture. Can I take a picture with you in the suit? Sure. You take the picture. He lifts up the visor, and it's freaking downy. <laughs> now, the only thing I can imagine were there security guards just tailing him all over the place and no one could see them because they may have been dressed as agent colson or something but uh that does not surprise me the guy lives for this it's like here give me your adoration you know and um 
the other thing he did that was great was he showed up and surprised all these little kids that were there for the Iron Man costume contest for kids that Marvel was doing. And he shows up as Tony Stark. So I know it's, he looks like he's dressed like Tony Stark. He's got the glasses on again and, and everything. So that was awesome. And, at the press panel, it was great. And I've got this up also on fangirlmag.com. I got the front row um, in the middle, right in the middle for everybody. So you have some great photos to look at of this because these guys were, were excellent. It was one of the best panels, even though it was one of the briefest. Um, I got to ta- ask them what I wanted to know, which was, with Shane Black coming on board as the directors, but Favreau's in the movie. He's not directing. Uh how is, you know, are we going to, no, Shane Black, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, The Boondock Saints. I know. Guy, and I know, all but of I love the weapon movies. I know, but Favreau didn't do so hot with Iron Man 2. I'm sorry, well, but. Iron Man 2 it, was a disaster, and I agree. Iron Man 2, and it wasn't his fault, I don't believe. But at the same time, Screenplay issues don't there. do the movie if it's going to be that bad. So my question was. Are we going to see the dark side of Tony Stark that we kind of got hinted at in Iron Man 2? That was, you know, you have a guy like Shane Black who can do gritty and you've got Downey who can do dark perfectly. What, or what are we going to get? So um, I got my answer. And uh, here it is. So um, this is kind of a combo question for Robert and Shane. Uh, you're so good at having kind of dark and gritty films, um, and you're so good at playing darker aspects of the character. Will we get to see any more sides like we did in Iron Man 2 of Tony's dark side coming before in this one? Yeah, I think that's the big idea. Um, but also, you know, interestingly enough, this film is a, is a, has a lot of breadth to it as well as, uh, we realize, you know, the beginning of Iron Man 2, Tony's dying, wow, uh, and then he has a party, and then he's drunk, wow, and some people are going, we don't like him. Um, there's a way to uh, enjoy all of that kind of shadowy stuff, and still, um, we, just, we just kept thinking about what, is it, what would it really be like if this guy was in this country, and where else could he go in this country, and what sorts of themes and backdrops could we explore? And I think that uh, if you look to the history of the, the films that Shane's written and he's directed, um, there's, a real, there's a real desire for me, just as someone who loves movies, to hearkening back to some of those um, themes in, in mainstream films, and they will occur in Iron Man 3. Right, although Tony won't fall off the wagon. Uh, we're just saying, no, no, look, actually, you haven't seen my rewrites. <laughs> So we won't get pissing in the suit, Tony. Thank God. Goodness. Thank you, Jesus, and all that is holy. Um, so I, I was very excited about that. And if you go on the on the website on fangirlmag.com, you will see uh, the footage of uh, Robert Downey Jr. melting into a puddle as the little sharpie goateed Tony Stark ten year old asks him, "What's it like to be a hero?" And 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 then Don Tatum laughing hideously and going, "This better be a good damn answer." <laughs> and it was, it was, but it was the cutest thing ever. I don't know how that kid got in there, but whoever brought him in, good on you. Um, but uh, I I wanted to uh, just say that it it was a great time, and and Comic Con was magic. It was really really fun, and uh, so I I want to thank um, you know. Everybody for listening on uh, tonight for this, and we do have a uh, a special announcement coming up here in just a second uh, that I know a lot of you want to know about, which is uh, part of the reason I was at Comic Con was due to uh, my being a writer for Harhound Magazine, and uh, one of the things I covered there uh, this year was, of course, The Walking Dead. Sadly, the audio just wouldn't play well over uh, for you guys uh, to actually hear it on the show tonight. So uh, I won't have any Walking Dead audio for you. But our next issue is going to have all of my coverage of The Walking Dead at this show uh, that I had. And it was a lot. And it was a big old thrill to, to get to do. Um, 
so uh, that was awesome. They the whole entire cast was there, and Walking Dead I think was on par with, uh, uh, God, with everything else. I mean, it was one of the biggest things. It finally it got moved into Hall H, and it's only on its third season. It took Supernatural, which uh, I believe there's a birthday going on today. Rachel, is there a birthday? Yeah, today? Jared Padalecki. And I think you have another one that you want. To say Benedict Cumberbatch. I slipped it in earlier while you were queuing, <laughs> but uh, but yes, it is. It is my 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 Benny's. No, I the world's Benny. Um, he turns thirty six. The today. world's Benny. The world he is. He's amazing, he and this is how amazing this guy is. When it when it started changing over in time zones to his birthday, Tumblr crashed for a long time Are because you girls were waiting up to post happy birthday for Benedict Cumberbatch. The other really cool thing that happened was um, a fan took one of his favorite charities and started a fund for to donate to this um, cancer fund. Actually, I have a uh, link to it up on my... Calls that cannot be identified by caller ID. Uh, up on my website or um, Facebook where in the first 45 minutes of Benedict Cumberbatch's birthday, fangirls raised over $7,000. Um, for this cancer charity and it's it's still going so if you want to give benedict cumberbatch a birthday present go on over and click the link that is awesome yeah it's 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 you know it's i love when fandom does great things and well and it, it is it's a great thing and uh i i need to uh uh i need to uh actually grab our special guest to do his announcement. So I'm going to duck here. So Rachel, Mm -hmm. do you have anything you would like to talk about tonight? I actually do since we're not, um, we didn't really do a week in geek because we weren't sure how everything would pan out, but this really cool thing um, popped up in the news where I believe a 19 year old, um, she, she, yeah, 19 year old girl from Egypt just kind of blew uh, all the rocket scientists' minds with her new innovation for space travel. So she proposes using these thin silicon panels spaced closely together to trap um, quantum particles uh, and then move against them to to propel the the um, the spacecraft. So that would make everything lighter. It would be cheaper. It would be safer. Um, it, you wouldn't have that huge blast off, which is actually some of the most um, dangerous parts of space travel is actually clearing the atmosphere. So she is currently trying to find funding to um, make this happen. She has a bit of it on her university level her science club at her school helped fund her application for the patent but obviously there's a lot of work but it's basically i mean you're looking at romulan space technology here Jesus. that a 19-year-old girl in Egypt just you know started developing and so that's it's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy and and you i think you posted that on facebook too didn't you yeah there's a link on facebook and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some more research, and I'll have some I'll keep the website updated with with what comes of it That's because awesome. I know some people have become really passionate about getting her some um, some funding. And I know Ren, if she was here, she would tell me she she posed on Facebook. She said it sounds like the Tachyon sailing ship from DS9, and it does. That's so. crazy. So um, that. We had to get our science blurb in, but now joining us, are you there, Mr. Hanneman? Hello? 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 I see him on there. Is he there? (laughs) Why is he not talking? Does he know we're on the radio? Because <laughs> so I, any mind you know, work I'm he just, might be I'm doing. Just going, I'm just going to do it myself if he doesn't talk. Because I know everybody's been waiting. Nathan. Oh. Can he not hear us? Jeez. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess we can drop him and then I'll just do the announcement then. <laughs> Hey, but you know, 
you get to do the announcement. I'm pretty excited because this is a follow-up announcement to the first Horror Hound um, con. Uh, right. Well, and I'm going to give him a chance to call back. Um, hopefully he will. But um, we'll do a little build-up here for this. So what's happening is um, we are doing not two but three conventions this year uh, for Horror Hound Weekend. Um, we've already done March, of course, and we have our upcoming September show, which is, is gearing up to be like the, oh, hold on just a second. Sorry. Embarrassment. Hold on. I knew there'd be one technical difficulty. Just a second. (laughs) So you, you're doing all these cons and you had the big announcement last last time we spoke about the first guest right right we we announced the big first guest and uh uh jamie lee curtis who is doing her first ever convention uh appearance and only ever convention appearance at this show in november uh the tickets i don't believe have gone on sale yet but uh hey nate you there Okay, you're okay. He's here. I've got him on my phone. Can you hear him? Okay, mm-hmm. so call call the number again, Nate. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, if it doesn't work this time, I'm going to do it. I am sorry about this. The technical difficulties always seem to happen at the very tail end. But um, yeah, we we're having Jamie Lee Curtis at Harham Weekend. And uh, I think we blew up the hotel already with uh, room reservations being taken. And we haven't even announced uh, the any other guests yet for it. It's just Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, I think we could just have her and people That'd would come. That would be pretty awesome. They, yeah, I mean, I'd stand and wa- listen to her talk for uh, a while. So let's see if we can hear Nathan this time. Nate, can you talk? Can you hear me? Yay! Yes. <laughs> Minutes. We have two minutes, Nathan. So, I'm going to give it to you. Announce our second guest for the November Jamie Lee Curtis special one-time only Horror Hound Weekend. Making his second convention appearance ever, the original Michael Myers, Nick Castle. That, so, we are going to have Michael Myers and... Lori Strode together, the originals at Horror Hound Weekend in November, and that can only lead to more Halloween goodness. Correct, Nathan? Yes, and the best part <laughs> is, you know, it's the first time they've done a show, and it's going to be the last time they're going to do a show together. Yep. So if you want to go, be sure to keep an eye out for when those tickets go on sale for Harham Weekend in November. I believe the hotel's almost already sold out. Yeah, they're going pretty dang dang fast, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. so Nick Castle, Jamie Lee Curtis, our first two guests for the November special one-time-only Harham Weekend Halloween ev- edition, I guess you would say. I, mean, I don't know what more we could do. Well, I guess we could do Terror Train, or not Terror Train, but uh, yeah, or Palm Night. The Fog. But we're, we're, we're the Fog. Throw the Fog should <laughs> be in there, too. But um, I think we're about rolling out of time here, so I just want to tell everybody thank you once again for listening to us. I think we did all right for our first live ever show, um, and I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank Nate for coming on and letting us be the first to to announce um, our second guest for Harham Week in November, which is, once again, Nick Castle, Michael Myers himself. And uh, thank you all for listening. I think, uh, I think that should do it. Rachel, you have anything left? Nope. Have a great evening and enjoy my birthday cake on behalf of beautiful boys. And enjoy Batman The Dark Knight Rises that starts at midnight tonight. And uh, I get to see it tomorrow. <laughs> So thank you once again. This has been Fangirl Radio signing off.